Okay. Um, I think it's probably a good idea to get started. There'll probably some more, be some more people coming in, but uh, I think we have most of us here. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Colonel Mark Warren. I've known Mark for over 20 years, and it's especially gratifying that he's finally, after many invitations, been able to come to the College of Law. Mark um, is, to me, after knowing him all these years, the personification of what I would call the ideal of selfless service. He's someone whose primary reward is his commitment to the public good. I've respected and admired Mark from the time I first met him more than 20 years ago, and my admiration for him and my respect for him has only grown throughout the years. Mark received both his undergraduate degree and his law degree from the University of Florida with honors, an LLM from the Judge Advocate General School, and a Master in Strategic Studies from the U.S. Army War College. He's presently Deputy Chief Counsel at the Federal Aviation Administration, a position that's obviously one of great responsibility. But prior to his assuming that position, he had a career of over 25 years as an Army Judge Advocate, an Army lawyer. And as such, he eventually rose to hold some of the highest positions that an Army lawyer can hold, including Special Assistant to the Judge Advocate General, Legal Advisor to the Commander of the Joint Special Operations Command. He holds some of the nation's highest awards, including the Bronze Star, the Legion of Merit, and the Distinguished Service Medal. And as a true soldier lawyer, he also holds a Master Parachutist Badge, the Pathfinder Badge, and the Air Assault Badge. He's here today, though, to talk about what was clearly the greatest challenge of his military career, and that is being the legal advisor to Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez, the commander of coalition forces in Iraq during 2003 and 2004. Marx agreed to come here and reflect with us on his experience during the first year in Iraq following the invasion and on the legal challenges facing military lawyers during wartime generally. Knowing Mark as I do, I am certain that his reflections will be thoughtful, insightful, and completely honest. I could go on about Mark's achievements and his personal qualities for the entire hour, but you want to hear Mark, not me. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce my personal friend and someone, as I said, I admire immensely, Colonel Mark Warren. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Can you all hear me with this microphone on? Okay, thank you. I'm going to use the podium to some degree, but uh, I'm also going to walk around. I hope you don't mind. Let me just say first what a great pleasure it is to be here with all of you today. I appreciate your hospitality. Greg, I appreciate that introduction. I've known and admired Greg for many, many years, and uh, I thank you for that. You know, I also appreciate your open-mindedness because I know you all had the benefit of my bio. You know I'm a University of Florida grad, and you invited me up to Columbus nonetheless, so I really do appreciate that. As Greg said, I spent uh, more than 25 years on active duty in the Army. I'm still employed by the government, so what I'm going to tell you today reflects my personal opinions, my personal observations. They don't necessarily reflect the position of the U.S. government. In fact, in some areas, I'm sure that they don't. I'll also offer my perspectives as a soldier, 
from the level and the point in time uh, that I occupy. And that may differ from some of what you've read about, uh, some of what you've heard, and that's okay. I just ask you, if that's the case, ask me about it. I've divided my talk into five areas that I'm going to call five myths about the first year or so in Iraq. I'm then going to offer some conclusions. Um, the uh, fact is, I don't want this to be a military-style briefing. I don't want it to be a travelogue, so I purposely went without any slides or photographs. Um, but I am going to talk mostly about my experiences observing judge advocates, military lawyers, in Iraq during the first year. Now, first, some context. In the summer of 2002, I was a colonel in the Army's Judge Advocate General's Corps. I'd recently graduated from the Army War College in Carlisle Barracks, and I was assigned as the Staff Judge Advocate, or SJA, of the Army's Fifth Corps. The SJA is the senior legal officer in a unit, and the Corps is the Army's largest tactical unit. It's commanded by a three-star general and has underneath it divisions and underneath divisions brigades. Corps command and control those divisions as well as their enabling and supporting units. In the case of Fifth Corps in the Iraq War, in the beginning of the war, its subordinate divisions were the 1st Armored, the 3rd and 4th Infantry, the 82nd Airborne, the 101st Airborne Air Assault, and it also had the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Each of those divisions had their own staff judge advocate, a lieutenant colonel, and a legal section. The 11th ACR had a regimental judge advocate and a smaller legal section. Each of the brigades had a major or captain judge advocate as a brigade legal advisor. Upon my arrival in 2002, the Corps was busy planning for war. Now that this was ongoing was probably the worst kept secret in the Army. Even before I graduated from the War College, I'd been pouring through the collections of its library and of the library of the Center for Military History, researching their extensive materials on the U.S. occupation of Germany and the Far East after World War II. After I arrived at Fifth Corps, the fall of 2002 was spent on several exercises, including victory strike in Poland and an exercise in the Kuwaiti Desert in November and December of 2003. In fact, the Corps headquarters spent Thanksgiving in Kuwait, and we were relieved and somewhat surprised to be able to get back home to Germany for Christmas. Also in the fall, I attended an ROE, Rules of Engagement, drafting conference in London. Throughout this entire period, though, my sense, and I think the sense of most of us, at least at Fifth Corps in uniform, was that we were part of a large show of force exercise, uh, that it was designed to influence the Iraqis to give UN weapons inspectors access to WMD sites, and that the chance of actually going to war was very small. Nevertheless, the chance was always a possibility. We were serious about planning, and by that time, Fifth Corps had been designated as the main offensive effort for the ground war if it were to occur. So in January 2003, the Corps and what would become its wartime division and brigade headquarters went to Grafenbeer, Germany, located in snowy Bavaria, for the victory scrimmage exercise. And that was designed to test fires, command and control, and communications. But while that was our main focus, we were able to interject a number of civil military operations issues into the play. In February 2003, 
the Corps returned to Kuwait and reestablished its headquarters in Camp Virginia, which was a big collection of tents and vehicles in the Kuwaiti desert. In March, the war began with a shock and awe campaign, joined by the long-range fires from the Corps artillery, and the Corps headquarters survived a few not-so-near misses from Iraqi Scud missiles, and by April, moved up to Baghdad International Airport. I went up with the Corps uh, assault CP and then stayed with the main CP, command post. Despite going without, without a shower for a few weeks, uh, these were re really very heady times for us. You know, we had gone through the unexpected Saddam Fedayeen forces, the irregular forces. That was a surprise to us. But nonetheless, within a few weeks, we had closed on Baghdad in a dramatic way with the thunder run of the 3rd Infantry Division's tanks up into Baghdad all the way to the Republican Palace. And it really had exceeded all of our expectations in toto. In a few weeks, we moved from the airport to Camp Victory, which is a large palace complex near the headquarters, and that remains the headquarters for coalition forces in Iraq until today. In June, the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, had been established in the, what was to be known eventually as the Green Zone. And the focus of our command and control effort really shifted from Camp Victory to the Green Zone, to CPA. So in June, I moved up to the Republican Palace, co-located with the CPA. And I remained in Iraq through the creation and disestablishment of Combined Joint Task Force 7, CJTF 7, through the creation of multinational forces and multinational corps Iraq until the announced end of occupation in July 2004. In fact, I left the week after we completed our occupation. Accordingly, I was the SJA for 5th Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Scott Wallace, CJTF-7, commanded by General Ricardo Sanchez, and multinational forces in Iraq for a short time before General Casey took over command of that outfit in July 2004. During my tenure in Iraq, we were prematurely congratulated for mission accomplished, and we were excoriated for Abu Ghraib. For the headquarters known as CJTF-7, the latter largely eclipsed the former. In fact, Abu Ghraib demonstrates the power of pictures and reiterated the impact of the strategic corporal, proving that actions by a few or lower-ranking soldiers can have profound strategic implications. Abu Ghraib also triggered a critical look at much more than the soldiers who were immediately involved in the abuse, although the results have been mixed and, frankly, often mixed up at best. I'll now address five myths that have arisen from our first year or so in Iraq, and they are, first, that there was uncertainty or confusion concerning whether the Geneva Conventions applied in Iraq. Second, that the occupation of Iraq was not anticipated. Third, the problems of looting, criminality, and civil unrest in the first few weeks of the occupation were neither anticipated nor addressed. Fourth, there should have been greater interagency involvement in Iraq. Fifth, U.S. forces were ill-disciplined and that abuse of detainees was systematic or otherwise the norm. I'll address and attempt to refute each of these myths in turn, but I think it's fair to ask how they became so widespread in the first place. Well, first, it's obvious that the war in Iraq did not go as planned. Of course, this can and often does happen in a war. Once the hounds of war are unleashed, they go where they want to go, 
despite assumptions or best intentions to the contrary. However, the Vietnam and Somalia experiences notwithstanding, our recent operations in Grenada, Panama, the first Gulf War, and Kosovo achieved relatively rapid success at relatively modest cost. We got accustomed to winning. The failure to win in Iraq caused many observers to look more for scapegoats than root causes. These myths became convenient to those who wanted to distance themselves from that first year, who wanted to criticize the decision to go to war in the first place, or who wanted to propose a fresh start or a new strategy, but without looking too deeply at what really happened in the first year and why. As almost always happens, the commanders and soldiers on the grounds became the objects of mythology, and in this case, not in a good way. CJTF-7, in particular, became the target of some special interest groups, politicians, and the media. It was an organization with no patron or constituency, a temporary and short-term amalgam of a headquarters. Unlike an Army Corps or a division, it had no alumni base, no history, no future. It had no defenders. It didn't even have a patch. It's not had the benefit of study, only scrutiny and investigation. There has, to my knowledge, been no meaningful after-action review or lessons learned conference on CJTF-7. Even the Army's official history of the first year in Iraq, called On Point 2, has been withheld from publication because of the possibility of adversely affecting courts martial arising from the Abu Ghraib debacle. CJTF-7 was critically under-resourced and placed in an impossible situation with CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, that fractured unity of command and made unity of effort impossible. It was the odd man in the middle between the Army and Marine divisions beneath it and Central Command above it. Worse, it was a joint command, so it could expect no defense from the services. It was the Task Force Smith of the new millennium, outmanned, outgunned, and left to die in the field. The Abu Ghraib scandal engulfed the headquarters in the late spring of 2004, diluting its focus and sapping its strength. This happened at the same time that Sadr's Shia militia attacked coalition forces, the Sunni insurgency exploded, al-Qaeda in Iraq emerged, Iranian adventurism increased, and key actions had to be taken to end the occupation, disestablish CPA, and enable the interim Iraqi government. Its leaders could not defend it, or themselves for that matter, for a couple of years after the command's disestablishment. They were the objects of investigation and congressional hearings, actual or potential witnesses in courts martial, and thus precluded from public statements to clarify or explain their actions. Certainly their situation and status, and their honor, made writing self-serving books participating in speaking tours, and interacting with many special interest groups an impossibility. The myths were gleefully perpetuated by some special interest groups that had an actual economic or perceived moral agenda to assume the worst about the U.S. military. They were aided by some people, some of whom who had served in uniform and should have known better. In some cases, the ulterior motives of these special interest groups should have been clear as they announced conferences on their websites that were to be held in places such as Havana, Cuba, or trumpeted war crimes indictments against U.S. leaders for everything from global warming to Hurricane Katrina and from the AIDS epidemic to systematic detainee abuse. 
In extreme cases, some of them are party to lawfare waged against the United States, twisting legal principles, making outrageous assertions, and abusing legal process to bring lawsuits or to make requests for prosecution of U.S. leaders for alleged crimes. However, our government has not been blameless in creating and perpetuating some of these myths. At the national level, we have ourselves created the conditions for some of them. For example, there was a failure to adequately plan, execute, and resource the occupation of Iraq, a failure to stick to a condition-based rather than an essentially arbitrary date certain to end the occupation, a failure to defer to the advice and experience of the military, a failure to follow the letter and spirit of the law of war by not setting universal interrogation and detainee treatment standards for U.S. forces on the battlefield, whether they were conventional, special operations, or non-military forces, and a failure to categorically condemn detainee abuse, even if committed by non-military forces in urgent circumstances and arguably not rising to the level of torture. In these cases, our government deserves to be criticized and in some cases sued, whether by special interests or others. With regard to detainee abuse and interrogation practices, our government conducted a series of flawed investigations from Taguba to Faye Jones, Schlesinger to Church, that have been at best diffused and incomplete. The very nature of multiple investigations means that they create enough gaps, seams, and inconsistencies to fuel a veritable cottage industry of conspiracy theorists. At least one of the investigations is simply a compilation of the others and repeats some of their incorrect information. Another kept no record of interviews. At worst, they've been misleading because they failed to address what are, in my view, the real root causes of the problem such as the lack of relevant doctrine and training afforded to military intelligence interrogators, the absence of sufficiently capable military police corps detention and correction expertise during the first year in Iraq, the failure of Central Command to plan for, resource, and execute detention and interrogation operations in Iraq, even after previous experience in Afghanistan portended many of the same problems that were repeated in Iraq and the broad interrogation authorities granted to some special operations and non-military forces, neither of which were under the command and control of CJTF-7. Notably and sadly, the one common conclusion of the investigations, that there was no systematic practice or command policy of abuse by the U.S. military in Iraq, has been lost in the noise. Instead, these investigative reports were frequently prematurely released and briefed to Congress and the media where they were dissected for sound bites and political advantage and triggered a demand for more hearings, more information, and more media opportunities. Leaders were hauled before cameras, editorial boards, and circus-style congressional hearings and often forced to answer questions before facts were fully known. To some degree, this may have been inevitable as Abu Ghraib created what some have described as the perfect storm, and earnest military officers are unarmed opponents in battles with Capitol Hill and the media. Regardless of the origin, the myths were born. The first, 
there was uncertainty or confusion as to whether the Geneva Conventions applied in Iraq. From my perspective, there was never any uncertainty or confusion, at least on the part of senior commanders and their staffs. The war in Iraq was clearly an international armed conflict between two high contracting powers, followed by a state of belligerent occupation. The Geneva Conventions applied as a matter of law. Notwithstanding the legal positions taken by some executive branch uh, lawyers on issues pertaining to interrogation and detentions, judge advocates in Iraq ensured that their commanders understood what rules applied. There were individual failures to apply them, but none were a matter of command policy. The Geneva Conventions were the express and implicit underpinning for everything we did in Iraq and were referenced in numerous operations, plans, orders, and standard operating procedures. In his September 6, 2003 letter to the International Committee of the Red Cross, the CJTF-7 commander wrote, quote, coalition forces remain committed to adherence to the spirit and letter of the Geneva Conventions, unquote. These principles are the bedrock for military training for all soldiers and Marines. They're the basis of the soldiers' rules that are taught in basic training. In Iraq, law of war refresher training was required as part of pre-combat training. In several exercises conducted before the war, considerable effort was put into training to apply the law of war in targeting decisions and in the rules of engagement. Starting with the ROE Development Conference in London in November 2002, much attention was paid to methodologies and modeling tools to try to estimate and minimize collateral damage. Judge advocates were placed in all corps and division level and in many brigade level fire centers to assist in the clearance of fires by ensuring compliance with the collateral damage methodologies, the ROE, and the law of war. Within Fifth Corps, judge advocates were placed down to the MP battalion level to assist with prisoner of war and detainee issues. Although the assumption that Iraqi forces would capitulate en masse never became a reality, the considerable effort that went into the detailed planning for capitulated forces was not wasted. A key point in the planning was that these forces enjoyed the legal status of prisoners of war, and the Third Geneva or Prisoner of War Convention was a well-briefed and well-understood topic in the headquarters. Similarly, at the start of the war, one of the first fragmentary orders issued by Fifth Corps, Order Number 007, dealt with prisoners and detainees. It cited the Third Geneva Convention, as well as the Fourth, which is the Civilians or Occupation Convention, and established a review and release mechanism for detainees that exceeded the requirements of the Fourth Geneva Convention and adopted best practices from Haiti and Kosovo, including a review of all detentions by a judge advocate. Of course, this was the first large-scale implementation of the Fourth Geneva Convention, new in 1949, and the sheer number of detainees would overwhelm our processes. Regardless, in our frequent interaction with the International Committee of the Red Cross, there was never any dispute over the legal applicability of the conventions, only in our ability to implement them completely. It's fair to ask how this myth originated. No doubt, it was born in part by soldiers who, facing courts martial for detainee abuse, asserted that they were confused over the rules or, for that matter, who raised the defense of superior orders or command policies to justify their actions. Their assertions have been extensively covered and amplified in the media. 
the fact that these assertions have been spectacularly unsuccessful despite the opportunity for extensive pretrial discovery to uncover any supporting evidence has been much less reported. But in fairness, there is a point to be made here, and that is that there were soldiers who served in Afghanistan where rules and principles were relaxed and then redeployed to Iraq where the Geneva Conventions fully applied. There were also soldiers who interacted with non-military forces who were apparently operating under relaxed rules and principles, even in Iraq. So I think it's possible that some soldiers at the junior level could have been confused about the applicability of the Geneva Conventions, at least until they received the refresher training on the law of war that was mandated. But none of the soldiers should have reasonably believed that detainee abuse was ever authorized, and any soldier who had questions about it should have sought clarification from a responsible leader. More broadly, however, our government, in my view, should never have deviated from the long-standing policy that our forces will apply the law of war regardless of how a conflict is characterized. And our Army, your Army, has since taken strong steps to reestablish this position and inculcate that into our training, doctrine, and culture. Over objections from some within our government, the Army, even before the Hamdan decision by the Supreme Court, rightly insisted that the principles of Common Article Three of the, Third Gen of the uh, Geneva Conventions remain as the minimum standards for the treatment of all prisoners, regardless of the context of their captivity, unless higher standards are applied. Myth number two, that the occupation of Iraq was not anticipated. The occupation was certainly anticipated at the level of the operating forces. However, higher level planning was inadequate or did not occur. Strategic policy decisions were not timely made and the requirements for occupation were not adequately resourced. The problem was not in failing to forecast the occupation as governed by the Fourth Geneva Convention. It was in failing to set the conditions for its effective execution. The situation is analogous to the dog chasing the car. The real difficulty comes, of course, when he catches it. In the victory scrimmage exercise and its follow-on before the war, Fifth Corps wargamed what we termed transitional occupation issues. By this, I mean problems such as rioters, criminal conduct, looting, humanitarian relief requirements, and civilian population movement that would impede offensive operations as our forces transited through and occupied parts of Iraqi territory. These issues so concerned the Corps commander that he directed an immediate follow-on exercise in Grafenbeer to try to develop responses to the problems. The result was stunning in a couple of respects. First, it was clear that transitional occupation issues could appreciably slow offensive forces and potentially require substantial additional forces to deal with them. Unfortunately, it was also clear that these additional forces did not exist. The Corps had developed a time-phased force deployment list called a tip-fiddle over the past year of exercise and intense mission analysis. The tip-fiddle identifies the amount and flow of forces necessary to accomplish the mission. In Grafenbeer, we learned that the Corps tip-fiddle had been scrapped by the Department of Defense and replaced by a much smaller force. The Corps commander was deeply concerned about the reduction in combat power and the resulting requirement to do a rolling start 
of the ground defenses with forces available and with the expectation that additional forces would, would arrive over time instead of being able to mass all of his forces at once. He was also concerned, and I was deeply concerned, about the cuts in combat support and combat service support forces, particularly MP units. Second, victory scrimmage and its follow-on demonstrated a potentially huge planning and capability deficit if the assumptions concerning what we called phase four, the phase after decisive combat operations, proved to be invalid. These assumptions were premised on the belief that many Iraqi military forces would capitulate, that is, surrender en masse without a fight, that Iraqi physical and social infrastructure would remain intact, and that a capable interim Iraqi government, probably under Ahmad Chalabi, would quickly emerge. If these assumptions were invalid, and of course every one of them proved to be invalid, and if our forces encountered problems like those identified in victory scrimmage, as of course we did, it was clear that we needed to plan for and resource a sustained occupation. Accordingly, Fifth Corps dutifully identified numerous issues and requirements and sent them up to higher headquarters. Some of our subordinate divisions, principally 3rd Infantry Division, did the same thing. In the legal arena, these included requests for decisions on what law was to be applied in Iraq, what parts of the Iraqi Penal Code could and should be suspended in accordance with the terms of the Fourth Geneva Convention, whether we should remove Iraqi judges from the bench, whether we should establish occupation courts, which are courts convened on the authority of military commanders with military judges, and what the proclamation what the occupation proclamation and ordinances should say. On a basic level, we asked for an Iraqi country law study and a translated copy of the Iraqi Penal Code. These questions and requests were received sympathetically by the SJA of our higher headquarters, and he, in fact, advanced those issues and joined us in all of our requests until we actually entered Iraq. Unfortunately, the answer we received was that there was a dedicated Phase Four planning cell at CENTCOM and in Washington, and that all of these matters were being addressed at the national and coalition level. General Wallace, the Corps commander, became so concerned about what was or wasn't being done in Washington that he sent our civilian political advisor to D.C. to sit in on the meetings. Her report was that interagency planning for Phase Four was indeed underway, but that it would not be called an occupation. We would not be occupiers, but liberators, and the O word was not to be used at all. Of course, this was ludicrous, as occupation is a fact, and the Geneva Conventions and the older Hague regulations established the rights and obligations of an occupier as a matter of law. This can't be wished away or dismissed by using the euphemism of liberator. On the topic of the Iraqi Penal Code, we didn't obtain an official version until we were long into Iraq. In the interim, one of our Fifth Corps judge advocates, who happened to be fluent in Arabic, checked out a copy from the Kuwait City Public Library and began the tedious ta task of translating the code into English. To make matters worse, the Corps G5, the civil affairs officer, had a heart attack in Grafenbeer and could neither continue in the exercise nor deploy to Kuwait and then on to Iraq. Civil affairs is the branch within the military that exists to plan and execute civil military operations, civil administration, and military government. 
He was never replaced by a civil affairs officer, and the position of G5 was instead filled by our G1, a very competent officer, but a personnel specialist, unschooled and inexperienced in civil affairs. Another deficiency existed in the Provo Marshal section. Until several months into the occupation, the senior military police officer on the Corps and CJTF-7 staff was a major. In January 2003, 5th Corps held a legal conference in Heidelberg to examine the ROE, targeting, detainees, and occupation and law of war issues generally. General Wallace spoke to the judge advocates, including the SGAs of the Corps' subordinate wartime divisions. Also in January, we hosted a conference with an Israeli judge advocate who had real-world experience in the administration of occupied territory. Upon our return to Kuwait in February 2003, planning for the occupation continued, albeit in a vacuum. The SGA section gave the Corps commander a lengthy briefing on the rights and responsibilities of an occupier. At the end of the briefing, we identified numerous issues concerning which we required information and decisions. General Wallace directed the staff to coordinate with higher headquarters and with the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, ORHA, the predecessor to CPA, that had recently established an element in Kuwait City. We did so, and we were beyond sorely disappointed. We were stunned. They had done little analysis, had devoted very few resources to the effort, and were very much behind us in their thought process. Instead, there was just a belief, really a hope, that the interagency, an agency, by the way, I've looked for in D.C., but I've never been able to find, that the interagency would issue the clear strategic policy decisions, deus ex machina style, that we so desperately needed. Myth number three, that the possibility of looting and lawlessness had not been anticipated. This probability had been addressed in the victory scrimmage and follow-on exercises, and I'd witnessed looting by civilians in Grenada in 1983 and in Kuwait in the first Gulf War. As an instructor at the Army's JAG school, I had studied what happened in Panama, where extensive looting by civilians took place during the military operations. It is a simple consequence of an authority vacuum, and it occurs when the lights go out and the cops are off the street. But in Iraq, we did not know that Saddam Hussein had emptied his prisons and jails and that every thug in the country would be back on the block. This caused untold problems as our troops not only dealt with prisoners of war and captured irregular and insurgent forces, but also encountered thousands of garden variety criminals. They caught some people in the act of violent crimes. Some were turned in by civilians after their acts. Some people turned in were probably convicted criminals who had been uh, placed on amnesty by Saddam Hussein and who hadn't done anything at all recently. And some were probably purely innocent civilians. But the result was a huge influx of common law prisoners, who we would later call criminal detainees, that we didn't anticipate and had precious few places to put them in, or soldiers to guard them, or courts to try them. And the problem was compounded by soldiers who were using prisoner of war capture tags to deal with these types of folks, and they would simply write on the capture tag, murderer, with no more information. In the march to Baghdad, 5th Corps had issued orders regarding procedures and warnings at checkpoints after a terrible incident early on in which an entire family was killed 
as their van approached a checkpoint without slowing down, despite, despite warning shots from a Bradley, and cordon and searches and curfews and weapons and explosives and fuel possession controls and on the use of force against looters. The problem was that these were all issued in an urgent fashion as necessary at the tactical level, but not as part of any cohesive or comprehensive plan. Efforts to try to address the problem in a comprehensive way were thwarted by a lack of fundamental policy decisions at a high level. For example, an occupation proclamation and orders to civilians had been drafted, printed, and even pre-positioned, but there was never the strategic policy order given to release them. Instead, actions were simply taken in accordance with the commander's intent using the Fourth Geneva Convention as a guide. I went on the radio in Baghdad to order judges and court personnel to return to work, denied the ability to convene occupation courts by CPA, Army and Marine judge advocates and civil affairs soldiers fanned out around the country to meet with judges, coax them to return to the bench, and reestablish regular court sessions. In almost all cases, this rudimentary rule of law program was enthusiastically supported by commanders who saw the reopening of the courts as an essential aspect of restoring stability and security. Judge advocates routinely went to Iraqi courts and even arranged for and executed payroll payments for judges and other Ministry of Justice personnel and were under, under fire on numerous occasions as they did it. Later, judge advocates created and staffed Judicial Reconstruction Assistance Teams, or JRATs, and for almost a year managed the Baghdad and Mosul court dockets. But there were few local police, no prisons, and almost no operating jails. In preparing for battle, our intelligence assets had an almost total focus on two things, the enemy's order of battle and weapons of mass destruction. Early in the war, I became involved in the analysis of an order directing us to seize a prison in Baghdad in order to safeguard some political prisoners who had information about WMD. In fact, it turned out that the prison no longer existed. It had been looted and then razed down to its very foundation, like virtually every other prison in the country, after Saddam had issued his general amnesty for all prisoners, except political prisoners, of course, in November 2002. The result was that all the criminals in a country of 26 million people were on the street, and we neither knew that nor did we know that there were almost no facilities to hold anyone we caught. In Baghdad, in addition to the large number of detainees, there was inadequate troop strength to effectively control the city. The 3rd Infantry Division had reached its culminating point. It had fought all the way to Baghdad and was exhausted. It just had little energy left to detain looters or guard key infrastructure. Orders were issued to protect museums, to protect courthouses, police stations, power and water plants, and public records holding areas, but there were simply not enough troops to go around. Even when troops were available, they frankly did not always follow through. I would often go out to key facilities to check on them, particularly courthouses and police stations, in those early days, we would just go out in a couple of Humvees with a small detail of soldiers, almost all of them lawyers or paralegals. Despite orders having been given to secure the buildings, there were often no soldiers there. In the case of courthouses, we unilaterally deputized court personnel as armed court police to guard the buildings, the records, and the judges. In the case of the main public record storage building in downtown Baghdad, 
where property and other records were stored, we walked right through unguarded doors and discovered that fires had been set in the document stacks. Courthouses and police stations were prime targets for arsonists. We were also spread thin in the legal area. Our core SGA section was the foundation of CJTF-7, but had continuing responsibilities in Germany. My deputy staff judge advocate had to remain in Heidelberg with the 5th Corps rear command structure. Our request for reserve augmentation in Germany had been denied, and the decision was not revisited until 2004. In the summer of 2003, when legal issues exploded due to demands of occupation, our limited reserve augmentation in Iraq actually shrank. The personnel planning assumptions that the war would be over in the summer resulted in the drawdown of legal support. It was like the stories of mobilization before World War I, only in reverse. We could see what needed to be done and the demand for more people, but the system was on automatic, sending mobilized reservists home. Concurrently, the joint manning document for CJTF-7 was being developed. I was, being, I was surprised that Fifth Corps was the base, but stunned that the personnel estimate for the size of the legal office was four attorneys and two NCOs, two non-commissioned officers, for a total of six personnel for the entire headquarters that was to run the occupation of Iraq. The Fifth Corps leadership, including the commanding general, became involved to correct this, and the, J the JMD grew, but we still had to augment it with Fifth Corps assets in order to have minimum capability. At the same time, the demand for judge advocates was going through the roof. When a rash of kidnappings and major criminal actions hit Baghdad, Fifth Corps formed Task Force Vigilant Justice with the SJA and 18th MP Brigade commander as co-leads to target organized crime in Baghdad. The task force ran some raids of modest success and then was given a nationwide charter and renamed the Special Prosecutions Task Force with a concentration on counter-smuggling efforts off the coast of Basra. It was eventually turned over to CPA as a combined and interagency task force. We asked Iraqi judges to issue orders to seize oil tankers carrying smuggled oil and actually had judge advocates fast roping from hovering helicopters to serve the orders and impound the vessels. Less exciting, but still important, judge advocates ran the rewards program for CJTS-7, which paid out a great deal of money for wanted personnel and certain types of weapons, such as surface-to-air missiles. There was much debate about whether U.S. forces should have shot and killed civilian looters. Aside from the fact that most U.S. troopers simply would not shoot an unarmed civilian who was not threatening them, our ROE in general would not allow it. The ROE allowed soldiers and Marines to use deadly force to accomplish the mission against lawful targets, combatants, to protect themselves and others, and to protect designated property, but not to shoot a fellow walking down the street with a TV set. In the early days in Baghdad, I encountered a number of looters and chased them away, but I never felt threatened and I certainly didn't shoot any civilians. In fact, judge advocates worked hard to find innovative ways to compensate civilians who had been inadvertently injured by our soldiers. The Foreign Claims Act would not allow the payment of claims arising from broadly construed combat activities, such as most shootings that we had at checkpoints. Judge Advocates convinced Central Command to reverse its position prohibiting salatia or gratuitous payments and drafted the enabling language for the newly created Commander's Emergency Response Program so as to allow compensation for unintended combat damage. Myth four, there should have been greater interagency involvement in Iraq. The truth of this myth is fully accepted by just about everybody. 
In fact, in my view, it's false. There should have been less non-military presence in Iraq in the first year. There should have been more interagency planning before the war and a more responsive and cohesive interagency decision-making process before and during the war. But in Iraq, the situation would have been drastically better if the military had simply established a military government in order to stabilize the country, restore security, reestablish infrastructure and institutions, and allow for the gradual reemergence of a capable Iraqi government as conditions permitted. Now, we'd have to endure the propaganda that we were occupiers, but did we really sidestep that with CPA? Besides, we have the obligations of an occupier regardless of what we call the situation or the instrument we use to administer the territory. By establishing CPA and placing CJTF-7 in direct support of it, we violated the military maxims of unity of command and unity of effort. It was never clear who was in charge in Iraq, nor was it clear as to the relative roles and responsibilities of CPA and CJTF-7. I was there. I saw General Sanchez daily and Ambassador Brimmer several times a week, and I never could figure it out. What was obvious was that there was a diffusion of effort and the squandering of several golden months after a decisive military victory, within which time most of the Iraqi population craved firm direction and before any insurgency could meaningfully develop. Instead, CPA concentrated on a wide range of activity, such as developing the Iraqi stock market, reestablishing symphony orchestras and arts programs, implementing Miranda-style warnings and building a defense bar in the criminal justice system, and promoting women's rights. Now, all of these were nice things to do, but I would suggest that none of them directly contributed to stability and security. At best, many of CPA's activities, even if successes, were irrelevant. Many were setbacks. CPA's efforts to rebuild the Iraqi police force and army were total failures. CJTF-7 had to take over the programs. At worst, some of CPA's directives were a blatant interference with the military's warfighting mission. These included orders to release dangerous detainees because of political considerations and extensive involvement in events in Fallujah in April 2004, including mandating peace talks that went nowhere and culminating in Ambassador Brimmer directing General Sanchez and General Abizade, who was then present in Iraq, to call off the attack on the city. Contributing to CPA's dysfunctionality was the near-constant turnover of personnel, including principals. For example, there were four senior advisors to the Iraqi Ministry of Justice during my tenure, not counting acting advisors who filled in the gaps. This meant new philosophies, new approaches, and, of course, redevelopment of personal bonds among all involved parties, including the Iraqis. Also contributing was the Secure Video Teleconference, or CIVITS. This technology allowed for personal communication between Iraq and Washington. The unfortunate reality was that it did not contribute much to common situational awareness or to informed decision-making. Rather, it led to confusion, as it sometimes trumped the military orders process and led to decisions that were not analyzed or thought through, or even coordinated with the military units that had to implement them. The civets enabled policy from within the Beltway to be instantaneously ejected into a theater of war, and that's typically not a good thing. The debothification policy is but one example. Based on a study of denazification, 
we concluded that we needed a conduct, not a status-based policy. The goal must be to quickly get the cop back on the, on the street, the teacher back in the classroom, the municipal worker back on the street. Judge Advocates developed a conduct-based policy using a Ba'ath renunciation agreement. General Wallace discussed it with General Jay Garner, who was in charge of Orha, and it was agreed. We printed and distributed thousands, and it was working. The policy told people to sign a renunciation agreement and promise to obey the law and get back to work immediately. Essentially, get to work, but we're watching you, and we're going to remove bad actors over time. Less than 10 days later, CPA announced its debathification policy that took exactly the opposite tack. It was a pure status-based policy that took thousands of people out of the workforce, disenfranchised them, and was done with absolutely no coordination with the commanders on the ground and no consideration of what we were already doing in the area. And this despite the fact that the decision would have a huge impact on law and order and on long-term security and stability. On the day Ambassador Bremer arrived in country, he announced that U.S. forces would shoot to kill all looters. This announcement was made without any coordination with the military in Iraq and no consideration of our ROE. Of course, our ROE rightly would not allow this, but we had to expend considerable time and effort to issue clarifying orders and guidance to put this genie back in the bottle. Another example of chafing between CJTF-7 and CPA was the inability to agree that CENTCOM General Order No. 1 which, among other things, banned alcohol use in Iraq, applied to CPA. Now, I know this probably seems like a very small issue, but it's a symptom of a lack of unity and confusion over the chain of command. CPA took the consistent position that the order was not applicable to it, not only to its civilian employees, but to its military personnel. A more significant difference involved private security contractors. CJTF-7 took a conservative, if not dim, view of armed security contractors. Our concern was that the use of armed security contractors potentially blurred the distinction between combatants and non-combatants, created command, control, ROE, and communications issues, and could possibly cause law of war issues if the contractors were to use force in an offensive way or otherwise contributed directly to the war effort by, for example, even guarding a lawful military objective. CPA, perhaps in a position born of necessity, took a much more expansive view, although sharing some of our concerns and also, in fairness, suffering from the absence of a coherent national policy on the use and arming of contractors on the battlefield. There were some bright spots in CPA. Its legal staff was brilliant. In general, however, it was a policy and politics-laden bureaucracy that was a drain and distraction to CJTF-7. In sum, it was more hurtful than harmful, more hurtful than helpful, rather. Myth number five, that U.S. forces were ill-disciplined and that the abuse of detainees was systematic or the norm. This is perhaps the most widespread myth of the war. The truth is that U.S. forces were disciplined and detainee abuse cases were relatively few, given the tens of thousands of detainees and the hundreds of thousands of soldiers and Marines in the country. Abu Ghraib was an awful and aberrant exception. Most detainee abuse cases occurred at point of capture, where tempers run high, frequently after an IED detonation or a firefight. The standard for reporting detainee abuse cases was, for a significant time, very low. 
After the Abu Ghraib photographs were turned over to the command and before they were publicly known, I went to the ICRC delegates in Baghdad and informed them of the existence of the photographs. I told them that the circumstances would be investigated, that the command would tell the media about the abuse and the photographs. By the way, the command announced the abuse and the existence of the photographs at a press conference in January, some three months before they aired on 60 Minutes. I also told them that those involved would be prosecuted. Although ashamed by the photographs, I was proud when the ICRC delegate told me, you must be the only army in the world who would do that. Detainee abuse in Iraq, including the abuse at Abu Ghraib, occurred despite, and certainly not because of, military command policies and orders. In Iraq, the command repeatedly and consistently emphasized disciplined operations and compliance with the law of war, including the humane treatment of prisoners and detainees. Just at the core in CJTF-7 level, there was Fragmentary Order 007, which established the review and release procedures for prisoners of war and non-prisoners of war. This order has been modified many times, but its detention review and release procedures are still the model on which that process is built in Iraq today. Memoranda to all coalition forces personnel subject proper treatment of Iraqi people during combat operations. This memorandum was signed by the commanding general and it reemphasized the responsibility of coalition forces to treat all persons under their control with dignity and respect. It said, and I quote, respect for others, humane treatment of persons not taking part in hostilities and adherence to the law of war and rules of engagement is a matter of discipline and values. It is what separates us from our enemies. I expect all leaders to reinforce this message, unquote. This memorandum was distributed by order to all subordinate units down to the platoon level, and leaders were directed to reinforce its message. A memorandum to all coalition forces personnel. This document reinforced the earlier memorandum, which went out in October of 2003, by the way, was distributed by order and directed distribution down to the platoon level and directed commanders and leaders to use published training vignettes to train all personnel on the law of war. It stated in part, and I quote, follow the law of war and use discipline in the use of force, treat all persons with humanity, dignity, and respect, and use judgment and discretion in detaining civilians, unquote. The CJTF-7 ROE card issued to and required to be carried by all coalition forces personnel the ROE mandated that all forces personnel, quote, treat all persons and their property with respect and dignity. Conduct yourself with dignity and honor. Comply with the law of war. If you see a violation, report it, unquote. Memorandum issued by orders to all coalition forces personnel, quote, the abuse of detainees is wrong and inconsistent with our training, our standards, and our values. We have a legal and moral obligation to protect persons under our control. We came to Iraq to help the Iraqi people build a free and democratic nation, a nation that respects civil liberties and human rights. We must set the example by our proper conduct. I re reiterate the guidance that has been provided in numerous previous command policy memoranda and orders. Follow the law of war and treat all prisoners and detainees with humanity, dignity, and respect." Unquote. So obviously there was no lack of guidance to soldiers and Marines. There were, however, huge problems caused by the sheer number of detainees and the unexpected crush of common law criminals. Judge advocates did everything in their power to ensure the proper treatment of detainees, 
and in many cases, judge advocates personally intervened to ensure that military authorities provided detainees with adequate food, water, hygiene, and shelter. One of the first organizational tasks was to separate common law criminals from prisoners of war. In May 2003, we fielded CPA apprehension forms that required detailed circumstances of capture, names of soldiers and witnesses, and sworn statements on the circumstances of capture. Now, these were met with some pushback from commanders and soldiers, but it was the right thing to do, and it helped to ameliorate the situation. Using the model of the Fourth Geneva Convention, we classified detainees into two categories, security internee and criminal detainee. The former were those who had engaged in hostilities and who would be held until the conclusion of hostilities were otherwise earlier released, perhaps through a parole or a release guarantor agreement. The latter were criminals who were held for trial or other disposition by the emerging Iraqi criminal justice system. The ICRC, in fact, modified its capture cards to recognize these two categories of prisoner. For those whose status was in doubt, we conducted Article V tribunals. When Fifth Corps closed on Baghdad, we began tribunals under Article V of the Third Convention for all of the high-value detainees, people like Tarak Aziz. The tribunals consisted of three judge advocates and concluded whether the prisoners were prisoners of war, security internees, or innocent civilians who should be released. While none of the HVDs were deemed innocent civilians, there were some decisions that raised eyebrows, but nobody questioned the fact that we were obligated to hold these tribunals. It was understood that we did so simply because the Geneva Conventions required it. During the summer, judge advocates organized Operation Clean Sweep, in which we brought in attorneys from commands all over the country and joined by an Iraqi judge, reviewed every single detainee file to see if they could be released outright or turned over to the emerging Iraqi court system for trial. Also in the summer of 2003, CJTF-7 issued an order nicknamed the mother of all fragos that established review and appeal boards as required by Article 78 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Again, the process exceeded the requirements of the convention. Concurrently, CJTF-7 was struggling to characterize the Mujahideen Ikhaq, the MEK, several thousand Iranians who had operated from Iraq as a military force against Iran. The MEK was our only large-scale capitulation, and they weren't even Iraqis. Unfortunately, they were on the U.S. list of terrorist organizations, and we had to determine their status. Again, the Geneva Conventions were used as a standard, and after a year of interagency wrangling, a lot of civitses, and debate, it was finally decided that they would simply be called protected persons under the Fourth Geneva Convention. There was also debate over the legal status of Saddam Hussein when he was captured. Although there were strong arguments by some to the contrary, we at CJTF-7 believed him to be a prisoner of war, which meant, among other things, we were obligated to report his capture to the ICRC and allow the ICRC to visit them. Ultimately, CJTF-7 prevailed in this position, and Saddam's status as a prisoner of war was publicly acknowledged. Of course, his status did not in any way afford him immunity from prosecution for pre-capture criminal offenses. Judge Advocates envisioned, established, and chaired the detention working group starting in July 2003, which brought together legal, MP, military intelligence, medical, engineer, and CPA assets in order to drive 
try to bring fusion and order to the chaotic detainee situation. The first detainee summit was held in August 2003, and it identified serious shortfalls in detention operations and recommended requesting additional subject matter experts and the establishment of a detention and interrogations task force commanded by a brigadier general. This requirement was not met until the spring of 2004. Recognizing that the command was about to be overwhelmed by detainee operations, CJTF-7 requested additional legal support for the detention and interrogation mission starting in the summer of 2003, as well as changes to the headquarters structure to provide attorneys to the Joint Interrogation and Debriefing Center at Abu Ghraib. These requests were not addressed until the formation of Multinational Forces Iraq in May of 2004. In the interim, we created an additional legal support cell at Abu Ghraib, using attorneys and paralegals cobbled together from various sources. Concerned about extrajudicial indefinite detention, Judge Advocates envisioned and championed Operation Wolverine, which proposed the trial of Iraqi insurgents engaging in unlawful combat. This led to the historic trials held before the Central Criminal Court of Iraq, which go on today, and they've helped reinvigorate the rule of law in Iraq. They had their genesis in an incident in which two 4th Infantry Division soldiers had been captured at a checkpoint and then executed, their bodies dumped by the side of the road. I went out to the scene to view the bodies and recall the number of times I'd been involved in the investigation of law of war violations by the enemy, but without any process that would hold the perpetrators criminally accountable. I resolved that we should try violators of the law of war and proposed convening military commissions for that purpose. The proposal went all the way to the Department of Defense, and it was decided instead to use the newly established Central Criminal Court of Iraq. Judge advocates and detailed Department of Justice attorneys invigorated the court, and we canvassed all the detainee files for cases amenable to prosecution. As you can imagine, we were faced with many files where there was enormous difficulty in turning classified intelligence information into evidence, and where there was a paucity of prosecutable information in the first place. However, we were able to start the process, get to trial, and eventually get convictions for the murder of coalition so soldiers and civilians. Now, this is a real point of peak for me because this great demonstration of the rule of law and of the law of war in combat has been misrepresented by some as failing to follow the Geneva Conventions because, they claim, we characterize those prosecuted as, quote, enemy combatants, unquote, in the manner of Guantanamo prisoners. Nothing could be more wrong. CJTF-7 never classified anyone as an enemy combatant. What we did was hold insurgents criminally accountable for their warlike acts committed without benefit of combatant immunity. They were still protected persons under the Fourth Geneva Convention, but they could be prosecuted because they were not lawful or privileged combatants. They did not meet the criteria of Article 4 of the Third Geneva Convention. In other words, we prosecuted unlawful combatants, a result not only contemplated by Geneva, but a result reached only by strict adherence to both the Third and the Fourth Geneva Conventions. Similarly, there, there's been much criticism of the quote-unquote many confusing interrogation policies in CJTF-7. Here are the facts. There were two. The first was developed in September 2003 and staffed with Central Command. It was an attempt to regulate the interrogation approaches and techniques that were flowing in from Afghanistan and Guantanamo, and in retrospect, I think, from non-military forces. 
Three weeks later, CJTF-7 implemented a second, more restrictive interrogation policy that essentially mirrored the Army Field Manual's interrogation approaches, plus added additional safeguards, approvals, and oversight mechanisms. Any request for an approach not listed in the memorandum would require SJA legal review in addition to review by the senior intelligence officer. In fact, there were no requests for other interrogation techniques to CJTF-7 other than for segregation. The intelligence brigade commander has testified that he approved dogs on one occasion, but did not seek CJTF-7 approval to do so. He received non-judicial punishment as a result. The Army Field Manual does not limit interrogators to the techniques listed, specifically allowing other techniques as long as they do not violate the Geneva Conventions. Requiring commanding general approval for techniques not included in the Field Manual made the CJTF-7 policy much more restrictive than the Field Manual itself. This fact has not prevented the media from asserting otherwise, of course. For example, a Washington Post editorial claimed that General Sanchez issued policies authorizing interrogation techniques, and I quote, violating the Geneva Conventions, including painful shackling, sleep deprivation, and nudity, unquote. Of course, this is ridiculous. The CJTF-7 policies did not violate the Geneva Conventions when used with the safeguards and oversight required by the policies. Moreover, the policies never authorized and would not allow the use of shackling, sleep deprivation, or nudity, or the use of dogs, for that matter, as interrogation techniques. In fact, as was concluded by the Army's chief trial judge in her analysis of legal support to CJTF-7, had the CJTF-7 interrogation policies been followed, there would have been no abuses at Abu Ghraib. I think one of our biggest problems was the use by other governmental agencies of our detention facilities. Despite my personal plea to non-military forces in Iraq uh, that Iraq was different than Afghanistan because the Geneva Conventions were fully applicable, I discovered unregistered prisoners held for non-military forces at Abu Ghraib. I notified the command there to cease the practice immediately and register or release the prisoners. Then I went to officials from other government agencies to tell them that the practice was wrong and would not be condoned. I also became popular with a non-DOD agency because our command complied with, uh, complied with the general prohibitions of the Geneva Convention concerning removal of protected persons from occupied territory. In fact, a non-DOD agency deemed me as an obstructionist to renditions in their cable traffic. As I reflect back on what happened in Iraq, it's ironic that CJTF-7 has been blamed for so much. In many respects, the media and others have gone after the good guys. We could have done things better, certainly, but by and large, my experience was that good people were struggling to do the best they could under very difficult circumstances. Of course, there were individual lapses, and those folks should be and mostly have been held to account. Twelve soldiers ranging from private to lieutenant colonel were court-martialed for Abu Ghraib, the first occurring in Baghdad less than four months after discovery of the photographs. Four other soldiers, including a senior commander, received non-judicial punishment, and 14 other soldiers were reprimanded for their misconduct. In all, 10 officers were punished for misconduct specifically related to Abu Ghraib. Numerous other careers were ruined, some perhaps deservedly, but some gratuitously. So, what does this mean for the future? One, disregard history at your peril. Decision makers would have benefited from a thorough study of occupation history, 
particularly the history of occupation in Germany and the Far East after World War II. It would have informed them greatly and potentially avoided missteps about debathification, restoration of law and order, and resources and decisions necessary to implement an effective occupation. Decision makers would also have benefited from an analysis of past counterinsurgency and nation-building operations, such as the U.S. occupation of the Philippines after the Spanish-American War, British counterinsurgency operations in Malaysia, U.S. military operations generally in Central America in the last century, and British operations in Northern Ireland. Among the things they would have discovered is that patience and adaptability are essential and that missteps and mistakes are inevitable but recoverable. Second, recognize that the box exists for a reason. Sometimes thinking outside the box is not helpful. This is particularly the case with the law of war, which has developed over time for reasons of humanity and necessity and is grounded in pragmatism. Old law can still be good law. For example, the Geneva Conventions are neither quaint nor anachronistic. At a minimum, they can serve as guiding principles even when not applicable as a matter of law. Common Article 3 being but one example. When they do apply as a matter of law, like in Iraq, they have demonstrated their utility and adaptability in being meaningfully implemented in the new millennium. Three, all who went before us were not fools. The principles of war and command, military doctrine, force ratios, troop to task ratios, and the military decision making and orders processes all exist for good reason. Put another way, Ignoring those things, either by senior military or civilian officials, is asking for trouble. Four, the military is an indispensable tool for nation-building, and modest rule-of-law activities are essential to establish security and stability. This has been demonstrated so frequently that it's amazing to me that the contrary view is still advanced. Fifth, timely strategic policy decisions are necessary to enable and empower soldiers and Marines on the ground. Once these are made, politicians should stay out of the fight. Six, you play as you practice. For the military, this means that exercises must not end with the defeat of the enemy's military on the battlefield. We must put as much intellectual effort into planning for activities after decisive combat operations as we do into planning for fires and maneuvers. maneuver. This would include updating our doctrine and examining our resources and capabilities for civil administration and military government. Seven, there is a random spotlight for mistakes and misjudgments, real or exaggerated. This is unfair and capricious, often based on erroneous information and misperception, but it is what it is. Eight, we cannot have different legal standards for soldiers and non-DOD operators, or even for soldiers operating in different operations or campaigns. It is too easy for the standards to be blurred and, as was the case with interrogation policies between Afghanistan and Iraq, to migrate. Perhaps a better word is to metastasize. Nine, the difficult legal issues facing our operating forces and the responsibilities placed on the shoulders of our uniformed legal advisors merit an increase in the size and rank structure of our Judge Advocates General's Corps. At a minimum, some unified SGAs, unified command SGAs, and the legal advisor to the chairman should be general or flag officers. The judge advocates general should be lieutenant generals, and it was heartening to see this recognized in recent legislation. Under no circumstances should judge advocates general be subordinate to any department general counsel. And last, 
Goldwater Nichols is a work in progress. There remains a significant lack of understanding of the relative roles and responsibilities of unified commands and services and service components, particularly in the area of discipline, investigations and reports, oversight and corrective action. This leads to inefficiencies, but it also affords opportunities to obfuscate or shun responsibilities, with the typical result being in this war that the Army is left holding the bag for an act or omission over which it had no control and to which its only relation was that somebody involved was wearing an Army uniform. With regard to investigations and oversight in general, I wish that we had devoted a small fraction of the energy spent on subsequent investigations and reviews on bringing those assets to bear, addressing and resolving the problems in the first place. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate your interest and your scholarship on these topics. We finished right on time, and I understand that I'm supposed to, to go to room, what is it, Nate? 50? Yeah. Room 250 to answer any questions or any follow-ups you might have. Thank you.